Thank you all for joining NeuroNoodle's Neuropsychology and Neurofeedback podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing for over 50 years and they have a ton of knowledge they'd like to share with all of you. You can find Dr. Laura at Janssens.com, J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. And Dr. Skip can be found at Dr. Skip, H-R-I-N.com, Dr. Skip My name is Pete, and today we're going to talk about managing thinking. Dr. Skip's going to take the lead on that. Then also we had some listener questions regarding chronic pain and fibromyalgia. Should be a busy uh, episode today. Uh, Let's get to the news uh, segment. Dr. Skip, you you were busy last week. You You have a few links in here you want to talk about. Yeah, my fingers fingers were dancing on the keyboard for sure. The one of them came across that was interesting is about um, mice, uh, which is always a topic, right? But these particular mice were paralyzed, and I always try not to think about how they get in the state that they get in uh, to get out of, if you know what I mean. But anyway, um, they they were paralyzed. They were paraplegic, so their their hind legs weren't working, and the particular study, which again, um, this is just a preliminary study, but the results were promising in that a designer, air quotes, designer protein, which is code for synthetic, was introduced to the mice. And what was determined or, or noticed was that the protein had the effect of impacting neurons at the site of injury, so motor neurons, but also had the capacity to pass on this information. And so a lot of studies around uh, you know, spinal column injury, just to call it something, it focus on the site and trying to regenerate you know, communication along a spinal column, right? If, if communication is interrupted, then that's, you know, just an easy way to think about how, you know, whatever your extremity isn't working, doesn't work, right? So they they were getting away from just concentrating on the site and looking at how can we possibly generate some kind of change at the site and at the areas that are involved in that site, motor functioning, right? But also maybe there's a way to pass this along. And they did find that, which is encouraging. And for them, right, and also super fascinating. Um, I, I can't tell you much more than that about the designer protein or any impacts that that might have, you know, off-label, as they say. But they were they were encouraged by it, and it does seem pretty fascinating. Bigger picture, it kind of sort of always for me is, isn't it amazing that we can see all these things almost in real time to be able to comment about it? That's the part I'm always blown away about right? That folks can sit around and think about, hey, what if we do this? And you can actually see it. And I don't mean the mice getting up and walking around. I'm talking about these axon, axonal branches growing, right? It's pretty, pretty wild stuff. That kind of goes in uh, conjunction with the, the link that I saw last week, of which we'll have up on uh, social media and our website. Um, that neurofeedback can be used to take away the phantom pain of somebody uh, with a prosthetic uh, limb. You know, that's uh, uh, pretty cool stuff. You also had one, yes. uh, you had a link here about kids face epic tech withdrawal. What's that one about Dr. Skip? 
Yeah, that was another one that jumped out too um, for its implications, right? But here we are hunkering down and been hunkering down and probably still going to hunker down for a little while longer. Uh, and I think since the first episode of this podcast, one of the questions that keeps coming around is, hey, what's the impact on people? Um, but because parents listen to this show, uh, kids, right? What's one of the impacts of kids? And, you know, separate from an epidemic or COVID, screen time's a thing. And screen time's a thing because of the, the neural habits it creates, right? You get a dopamine bur- boost, burst, whatever. When you're looking at your screen, doing whatever, uh, your brain likes that, it feels good. And so it continues to seek out the stimulus to get that boost. And in this case, we are talking about screens, you know, screen time, reach for your phone. Hey, what's this, what's that? I think everybody can relate. Um, the article was referring to uh, the the kind of, overindulgence in screen time because everybody's kind of hanging out at home and also uh, learning remotely, right? So we're, we're doing way more screen time. And so the article's looking at, hey, what's going to happen when things open up here in regards to this specific issue? Obviously, that's a giant question for everybody. But in regards to this screen time withdrawal, and it didn't necessarily, you know, offer any concrete remedies it was it was bringing up the idea hey we're facing uh an issue here with you know taking away kids screens maybe i could have phrased that differently but uh you know because there's going to be other things to do go outside and play go to this go to a birthday party whatever it it might be do your homework and that there will be withdrawal symptoms and so let's start talking about it that's, that's the gist of that article as far as I was able to glean from it. I don't know about your guys' thoughts on that, but it's a common, right? Like what kind of symptoms can parents uh, be, be in store for to see what their kids are doing? I mean, crying, kicking around, like what's... Yeah, that's the gnarly image that comes up in my mind is uh, temper tantrums, you know, tantrums and kids hanging on to one end of an iPad and the parents pulling on the other, um, right? That scenario. I think there's probably more subtle um, symptoms. And Laura, if you want to comment too, of course, but, you know, irritation, right? Grouchiness, um, withdrawal symptoms, right? So you're, you're cranky, um, you're irritable, maybe even depressed, maybe even anxious, right? Those guys run hand in hand, meaning depression and, anxiety in general, they share a lot of comorbidity. Uh, what do you think, Laura? Yeah, aggressiveness, you know, um, uh, I, I, I uh, took up camping, that's, that's my, um, Skip can talk about his experience too, but took up camping in the COVID era, just so I can get outside and do the, uh, other things in different places. Anyway, I um, went camping with uh, some friends of mine and their daughter, the daughter's probably five years old, uh, and uh, she would spend all her time in our camp because whatever she could and, you know, somewhere else to go, whatever. Anyway, uh, you know, playing with her, played Barbies and do all the stuff you do with a little girl that age. And uh, there was a point where I'm like, you know what? I've been playing Barbies with you for two hours. Uh, here's my iPad. Um, and she sucked it up like it was, uh, I don't know, she's a vacuum cleaner. And uh, it was just whatever, coloring on the iPad. And of course, her parents found out I did that and they, they were going to hang me. But um, 
and, and when the mom tried to take it away from her, I mean, talk about going, you know, uh, Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, she aggression and, and anger and, you know, you guys are the worst parents ever and why, you know, so um, yeah, an obsessiveness, a clinginess, uh, you know, you're taking away my, my lifeline here and, and yet yeah, has all, all the same characteristics you'd see with, uh, you know, someone with an opioid addiction or alcohol addiction. Um, and, and very immediate, you know, it's like, um, you know, give her 10 seconds with it and she, you know, uh, and then take it away and she can barely breathe. Oh my God. If you mix that in with a teenager, what do you got? <laughs> yeah. Look out. <laughs> I'm going to change my uh, camping address. <laughs> and then Dr. Skip, uh, you had another one that's going to lead into one of the topics we're going to talk about today. Uh, DSNR, uh, Joe Dispenza Focus uh, by the Urban Monk. Can you clue uh, us on what that is? DSNR, yes. that sounds really cool. Yeah, so real quick, just to touch on what Laura said, and I think the maybe bigger point of what we do for a living, all of us here, is these things that we're talking about, which are you know unenjoyable behaviors to engage with or in, right? You know, tantrums and all that crap is it's brain stuff, right? Your, your kid's brain learned how to do something. And, you know, because of how we want things, right? We're like, hey, we're not doing that anymore. And the brain's like, did you say something, right? Like I got, a, I got my job to do here that I just learned and it feels really good. And uh, I'm not really participating in, in uh, what you guys are doing in the conscious world, right? So again, the, the point, just man, we could say this every five seconds on our show, right? Is this is brain stuff. It's unconscious neurological functioning. And so, yeah, you're seeing behaviors real time. Um, and that's what we ultimately all have to deal with. But it's brain stuff. It's not a matter of, hey, if you don't calm down, uh, you know, you're going to get whatever, whatever the consequence is. That's not the fix. I understand, you know, you have to order in the house and, you know, parents in charge and all that stuff. But that, that's not what's going on. It's, it's a brain thing. So anyway, but back to what you had brought up Pete and speaking of brain stuff. So those, those three things that you mentioned, DSNR, Joe Dispenza and the urban monk, right. Who's a different, different individual. They're all three different people um, doing their own version of, of this kind of sort of, but this being conscious awareness of unconscious functioning. And so Laura was talking before we started, before we hit record here uh, about mindfulness and, and a university in, in your area, right? Um, that is mandating, maybe too strong a word, that mm -hmm. folks participate in, in a mindfulness course or mindfulness training. So d is that true, Laura? Yeah, it, it, yeah. Um, university, I guess I have to check my, uh, my memory on this, but I think it was University of Chicago. Uh, no, I'm sorry, UIC. Um, oh, yeah. University of Illinois, Chicago, one, one of the two. But uh, yeah, I heard the, the medical program there uh, required the uh, medical students to take mindfulness training as part of the curriculum. So I thought that was, yeah, pretty um, advanced kind of thinking over there. And I'm certainly, uh, you know, asking, but not trying to, you know, drop the ball here either with what Pete, you know, had asked me to do, but my understanding of mindfulness and the way I've always kind of made sense of it is 
being aware of your thinking. And I know that's quite simplistic and there's some practices that also lend themselves to the definition of mindfulness, right? It, it, it's a noun and a verb, right? Um, and so, I mean, do either of you want to expand on that? Because it, it jumps into, you know, those three individuals that I referred to, but just to get a definition out there for mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness, so I kind of kind of spread it out a little bit. Uh, absolutely, if we, we put it into one sentence, I think that captures the entire thing. But I, I um, well, from the standpoint that it is possible to uh, be a, an observer of your of what you're doing, you can observe your thoughts, you can observe your uh, feelings, you can observe your physical state, you can observe your surroundings. So anything that can filter through your senses, um, there's an observer in you that notices notices these the, uh, sensory experiences. Um, so uh, your sense, your taste, your touch, uh, your smell, etc. Um, th- these are all things you can become aware of uh, in, in a co- in a conscious way. So you know, once we realize we um, that there's a, a driver of the bus, uh, and we realize that uh, you know we can uh, put into perspective or step out of the middle of those experiences, then. Um, you can have con- control of those things or the, the act of observing your awareness to those things is in a way it's kind of a Buddhist thing. You're in control, but not in control. Um, so uh, yeah, I completely agree. So it's, it's observing these things, these sensory experiences, it's observing your thoughts, observing your emotions. And to me, I always put a second uh, tier on there. It's making these observations, but as much as possible without the, criticism without the judgment. Yeah, I, I mean, yes. <laughs> and Pete, I don't know if you have anything to add to it, um, but it does involve meditation and gets into that world too. And that might be the verb, the verb part of it. Um, but Pete, did you have anything? The only thing I had was to me, it's, you know, you're in con- being control your thoughts, just that keyword control helps yeah. alleviate some of the anxiety. That's how I look at it. And like super central point to all of this is unconscious neurological functioning is arguably um, outside of our awareness and then maybe control. The three folks, again, that I keep alluding to, are going to argue differently and they're going to particularly Joe Dispenza because his work involves actually live performances where folks are practicing mindfulness and their physiological responses are changing live, right? So they're doing fMRIs. So these folks will all say you can control your thoughts and you control your, you can control your unconscious neurological functioning and physiological functioning, right? Autonomic nervous system, conceivably is out of conscious uh, awareness and then therefore out of conscious control. And all these guys are knocking that wall down. Um, and, and again, back to what I was saying earlier with the advent of technology and being able to see things like we could never see them before meaning in offices like ours, right. If we can, uh, you know, get, get, things on credit, right. And, and buy things, right. You can actually have equipment in your office that lets you see some of this, but anyway, back to 
this idea of mindfulness and where it starts is this idea of noticing things and, and noticing your thinking for the purpose of changing it. The idea being that there's unconscious patterns or habits that have been created over time or ages, eons, maybe genetically predisposed, maybe, and probably more pointedly for me in my career was the idea about 20 years ago, it started to be around and Laura, you know, back me up or, or dispute me, but the idea that, Hey, when folks experience trauma, the, the physical structures of their brains change in response to this experience and, and interpretation too. Right. And so that got this way of thinking going that, Hey, if our brains can change in response to something, some external event, can't they change in response to other things? And the answer is yes. And, and I think that's what I'm trying to get at here. And this, by the way, isn't 20 years old, uh, depending on who you talk to, it's thousands of years old in these beliefs. They're just newer to our scientific community. And then as things trickle down, I think to, you know, what's referred to maybe not so uh, affectionately as the pseudoscience of psychology, right? As it start making its way into our offices in treatment with people, now we have these kind of blurred ideas of what can and can't happen, right? And so, again, back to the starting point is mindfulness is a practice in noticing thinking with the idea being that we're trying to, air quotes again, catch bad thinking, stinking thinking, as it's referred to in treatment world, um, for the purposes of changing it or altering the direction. And again, within this kind of loose explanation or paradigm of the process that over time, and Laura might be able to jump in with the actual you know, neurological uh, happenings here, but over time, what you're doing is you're interrupting a habit, just to call it something, but a neurological habit, right? Meaning unconscious functioning. So you're interrupting that process and you're altering it or you're steering it in a different direction. And, and highways, neural pathways, highways, road systems, the, the analogy fits metaphor um, for brain function, right? And so the idea is that you're, you're trying to stop a pathway, an automatic pathway, a rutted road, if you will, because it doesn't work for you, right? It's, it's anxiety, it's depression, it's um, chronic fatigue, it's, it's multiple things that are basically brain determined, right? And so you're trying to consciously redirect in a more preferable direction, health, happiness, contentment, all the other things that aren't those other things, right? And the, the practice again of doing that is through consciousness, the impact or the effect of that conscious practice, mindfulness gets at these unconscious functionings, right? So you're developing new habits, just to put it quite simply. But the practice of mindfulness involves those things. But again, the, 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 you know, the, the elevator pitch, right? The, the key here is that you are able to alter your thoughts and you're able to direct your thinking in ways that ultimately result in more preferable behaviors. And I know that's kind of jargony there, but 
each of those people, which I can get into more detail in their particular systems that they do or programs that they run, but they all are coming out of that world that, hey, through, through conscious awareness and catching these bad habits, if you will, we can ex- begin to extinguish these habits and develop new preferable habits through our thinking. So um, there you go. Let's maybe Laura can jump in. Um, Laura, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the role of the limbic system in all this. Um, not that you have to jump there, but yeah. th- that, that one does lots of stuff and it gets in habits real quick. Uh, how about you? You tell me what you know on that part, because I'm thinking of it from a different system, but you tell me what you're thinking with the limbic system. Okay. Um, and, and I'll make it quick because I do want to hear what you have to say about no, other yeah. things, but particularly um, DSNR, Pete's referred to that, uh, and it's dynamic neural retraining system. There's a lady named Annie Hopper that developed this system. Um, and it, it's, it's a mindfulness system with, you know, um, designated steps or, or la- layers, levels that you practice to, again, kind of acknowledge, interrupt, redirect and develop new ways of thinking that have been shown to alter the functioning of the limbic system. The limbic system is our emotional, environmental, sensory processing system, among other things, and the amygdala processing emotions. Um, There's also the cingulate um, cortex, the hypothalamus and the hippocampus are considered the limbic system, maybe another structure or two, but generally those are the ones. And they process, again, sensory stimulus, which, you know, to, to make it a little more um, accurate here, we're talking about billions of bits of information per seconds, right? There's a lot going on that our brain takes in. And thank God it does it unconsciously, right? You wouldn't be able to brush your teeth, but all that happens. And the idea, at least according to Annie Hopper, is that because of some overreaction to stimulus in the past for maybe clear reasons that the system just learned to be on hyper alert. And so with something like um, multiple chemical sensitivities, folks are super, super reactive to colognes or perfumes, for example, or paint or carpet dander and carpets or even carpet, you know, um, what do they call that gassing off? Like those kinds of things will knock these people down for three or four days. It also rolls over into then food sensitivities and electrical sensitivities. I don't know if anybody's seen uh, Breaking Bad or better yet, um, better call Saul, but his brother, right? His brother had the, the electrical stimulation where he couldn't even be around electrical stuff, right? He had to, they had to leave their phone and their key fobs outside and all that. But anyway, that's what we're talking about. That's at least a visual representation. And her idea is that the limbic system is working overtime because somehow it learned that it needed to. And so her approach is to consciously right through this practice, redirect or recalibrate the limbic system. So that's just one in particular. And so there's pass the baton to you, Laura, on maybe where you were thinking. 
Yeah, well, you got me thinking of Len Koziel now, of course, because yeah. you know, he'll talk about the cerebellum and, and that, that structure in the back of the brain that uh, regulates your, your responses uh, in sync with the environment. So I, I think of that and the children that I see who have all of those things. Uh, I haven't seen the electrical uh, hypersensitivity, but definitely kids who come in and, and they won't wear blue jeans because the texture is too stiff. Sure wear you know sweatpants uh don't like the tags in the shirt the usual thing i had one young guy years ago who uh the uh fire alarm got set off in the building and he was the first kid out of a 10-story building to be across the parking lot he like flew across i don't know he got out of my office he's a little 10 year old kid got out of my office, found his way out, and he was across the parking lot in the quickest I've ever seen anybody move. So talk about, you know, re reactivity. So yeah, it definitely has me think about that. And then, um, you know, kind of wrap it back to the mindfulness idea. I, I think of the um, neural networks and I, I've talked about the default mode network, which has to do with self-referential thinking. We think about ourselves when we don't have a, a goal a task that we're working on. So basically when we're doing nothing, our mind wanders to um, ourselves and we're self-critical and judgmental. And there's, there's probably an evolutionary benefit to that. It helps us you know, move forward if we you know, correct our, our faults and mistakes, those kinds of things. Um, but the point is that with mindfulness, um, you become aware of your default mode and the activity of becoming aware switch there's a switch you're either in default mode or you're doing something with a goal in mind or, or you're actively going you're, you're doing something so you're either doing something or you're in default mode and there's a switch i'm going to guess that's probably the, the front there the anterior cingulate whatever it switches between your internal functioning and the external world that'd be my guess too that that's yeah, where right. that happens so, right yeah of course yeah so uh, with mindfulness it's getting out of the the default mode and into doing anything, even if you're, uh, I worked in a um, eating disorder related clinic and there's plenty of people with eating disorders. And one of the things that they did with the, the people to get them to think about what they're eating is to be mindful of your eating. So we do stuff like pass out a raisin or a piece of a slice of orange and have people to be mindful of their eating. So it gets them out of that habit and into the moment, into the actual food. And, and by being aware, uh, you can make different, uh, have more control as we're all talking about, more control of what you're doing rather than you know, live on habit or, or some default mode that's uh, running amok. With the cingulate, and, yeah. and it's the cingulate cortex, right? And, and yeah. we almost always refer to the anterior cingulate cortex, certainly within neurofeedback. Because that does seem to be where the, the gating is for maybe some of these transfers, right, of, of one hub to another hub, at least as far as where, where the attention goes. And that doesn't have to mean uh, conscious attention, right? But mm -hmm. I always think about it. I hope this is helpful. But I'm always thinking about, I grew up at East Coast and, and there's the CNO Canal, right? And it's this old uh, walking path, but it was the, 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 the canal, the Cumberland and Ohio Canal, where they took goods and services and probably people and all kinds of other stuff back and forth, right? It was the, it was the pre-rail system. And 
the the locks how, how it would work is they would open up these locks and the boat that would be in it with you know relatively low level of water was now being filled with water to where it raises up and then the boat is able to go to the next lock and by the way the canal pathway is you know 20 feet away and so there is some kind of animal kind of pulling pulling the barge up the canal but it was a way to be able to transport all these goods uh, through elevated terrain, right? There's no current. You're not flying or floating down a stream. You know, it's a canal that was man-made. So I always think of those gates or locks opening up when I think of the cingulate. I think of the cingulate as kind of the canal. And so if that resonates or that even seems true to anybody, then I guess what we're talking about is working on how those locks open up. And I, and they're called locks, but I don't mean it like it's locked. It's, it's just being more aware of, hey, is my you know, lock wide open here. And so I'm stuck in default mode, which is only serving to reinforce whatever might be going on in default mode. And yeah, with DSNR, we're talking about things that are impacted by the limbic system, like chronic fatigue, um, multiple chemical sensitivities, uh, fibromyalgia, right? She even gets after POTS and um, addresses other limes and things like this, right? But depression, anxiety, right? The big two, the big guys, um, those are default mode network, uh, all stars, right? Because you're constantly reinforcing slightly out of your awareness. Hey, this sucks, or I'm not that great at this, or here's this thing again, right? We're finding information that is reinforcing a theme. And so again, back to mindfulness, it's being aware of that, shining a light on it, if you will, for the purpose of stopping those connections in their tracks, right? If, if you can, and redirecting to another more preferred, maybe practice, maybe intentional, right? Like you're saying, um, thought process and like easy to say, but fake it till you make it kind of thing. There's, we're, we're, we're changing habits, right? And again, I think the the metaphor of water works real well. We're changing the current, right? There's a stream that just flows one way because it has, and it's, it has provided a, a, a way for itself to just move effortlessly. So we're changing current and we're establishing another pathway. Um, and again, according to a lot of the imaging that's out there, quite literally establishing other pathways in our brain and the practice of doing it is an intentional practice. And so you're, you're living your life and trying to notice these things as you're doing whatever else you're doing in your life. But then a designated time is set aside to practice the desired objective or goal or where you want to be. And it's using things like imagery, right? It's using things like bringing in all of your sensory knowledge to try to enhance these new goals, right? If you will, um, because the idea, hey, that's how the limbic system works anyway, and it involves the amygdala. So let's use the same system, but let's just put it and 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 turn it where we want it to go. So I know I'm just you know touching on this stuff briefly, but these other places you could check out Annie Hopper, check out DNRS, Dynamic Neural Retraining System, if you have something going on with chronic fatigue or these multiple chemical sensitivities. Um, these are also issues that in my opinion, and, and I'm not alone, that are pretty poorly treated in the traditional 
Western medical system because it's just not set up to deal with those things, right? That it's symptom driven. And so, you know, you got a runny nose and you're going to get an antihistamine. It, it's not looking at the underlying systems that are involved in creating these symptoms. So that's, that's the DSNR. Um, Joe Dispenza and the Urban Monk are different guys. Um, I, I just trying to leave room for anybody else that might want to say something here before. Well, a couple of things are popping in my head. Um, one of them is the connection between PTSD and pain. Um, years ago, I, I ran uh, one of the clinics I worked at, went to all group therapy. So instead of individual counseling, they um, had this idea that, you know, everyone should be treated in groups, which is fine. It was interesting kind of experiment back then. But what happened was I ran a pain management group. And then at a different time down the hall, I guess, I ran a PTSD group. And what was interesting is when people graduated from the PTSD group, they ended up in the pain group and vice versa. So the pain, pain management people would you know, have addressed those things and then turned up in, in PTSD. So maybe that's your, you know, another way to look at or get at your limbic um, uh, connection here that, yeah, our, our pain and our trauma centers are, you know, one and the same, uh, I suppose. So that that's an interesting just kind of comment. And then the other thing we're talking about is kind of the, this growth of, of mindfulness. And I mentioned that there's a medical school that has it as part of the curriculum. The other story I tell is that Google as a business, the company Google has a mindfulness guru and they're afforded, I don't know if things have changed recently, but back when I talked about this more, uh, you know, five or so years ago, uh, Google, there's a, I think his name is, I looked it up here, Chade, C-H-A-D-E, Meng Tan, and he wrote a book about mindfulness. So at that at Google as a company, they would allow their employees like an hour of self-reflection time. I don't know what, what it was called exactly, but they got paid for this hour or a day to go take mindfulness classes because it improved uh, productivity. So I thought that was, you know, we, we can think of mindfulness as a kind of a, you know, a little woo-woo thing or, or something like that. But when it's, you know, being implemented in businesses and medical school, you, know, you start to talk about sports, Seattle Seahawks, um, you know, getting to the Chicago Bulls. And mindfulness is at the base of, you know, successful things, successful business and companies and things like that. So I, I think that's fascinating. Um, but when we're talking about, you know, pain and fibromyalgia in, yeah, there's absolutely, you know, these brain connections um, that, that we're trying to get after to calm things down amygdala has to do with emotions and if we're wired or become wired to be sensitive you know you get burned once well guess what you know i'm going to avoid just automatically avoid the things that look or smell like the thing that burned me the first time and our mind has a memory for that and what we're talking about is trying to cool that cool that place off and whether it takes mindfulness or other techniques, neurofeedback, uh, or the combination of and all of the above, that's what we're trying to do. And kind of wrap it back into, you know, we're talking about uh, children who are, you know, withdrawn or, or addicted to things, you know, chemicals or, or electronics. We're, we're in COVID era and, you know, we haven't been or haven't been saying loud enough maybe that, yeah, this is a traumatic time for 
in developing, especially developing children. In my opinion, I see many of these kids, and they're, they're so you know, they come in to see me. Thankfully, they'll come in. We have all the precautions that I can do testing with them, but they they certainly look like they've been through war. You know, sitting at home, you know, learning through a screen. Some of them want the iPad to play or play games, whatever, but to have to learn and, and you know, hold your attention to a computer screen, that, that's pretty traumatic stuff. So I guess I'm linking the whole thing together, that we've got mindfulness, we've got ob objective ways of uh, looking at the brain. And uh, Lori Russell last, well, her book just came out. I saw it's in, in paperback now. She just got yeah. it sent to her house, which is pretty cool to see for her. But that's what her research was. And she took a bunch of people, had them do mindfulness training, took took pictures of, of the brain functioning and can see very specifically what areas are lit up. And I, you know, I love the, haven't got the book yet myself, but I'm sure it's the, the areas that we're talking about, the limbic system and the uh, anterior cingulates and the um, default mode networks, et cetera. So um, yeah, so we're wrapping all that together uh, and looking at pain and um, uh, traumatic uh, experiences. Now, guys, are we uh, are we good with uh, with the mindfulness? Anything else we want to add? Just wanted to throw out for folks to maybe look into is the work of Dr. Joe Dispenza. Joe, like you'd spell it, D-I-S-P-E-N-Z-A, and I think it's D-R-J-O-E, D-I-S-P-E-N-Z-A.com. And super quick on his backstory. He's a trained chiropractor. And in his early twenties, he was doing a triathlon and basically got run over by an SUV while on the bike portion of the triathlon, crushed his spine, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, you know, being in the field, he knows a little bit about how the spine works, but uh, multiple recommendations for him to get what's called a Harrington rod in place, which is basically a titanium rod that acts as a spine. Um, and, 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 you know, along those lines, traditional um, Western you know, response to a tragedy, right? Tra traumatic situation, which Western medicine is pretty good at those kinds of things, right? We can, we can diagnose and we can deal with emergency situations pretty darn good. Um, and so that was, you know, the predominant thinking there. And he chose to go a different route um, and he gave himself, oh man, I want to say six months, but it could have been longer. It could have been two years. It's, it's the, this story is the base of, uh, one of his books, which is called the, uh, placebo effect. But anyway, he decided to try this other way and try mindfulness and try to heal, uh, his injuries with his thought. And so he developed a program over time where he spent hours and hours and hours a day to do that. And if you look at him on any of his videos, he's, walking around doing everything else everybody else is doing these days um, through that approach, right? So that's just it in a nutshell. But so that's his backstory um, where he's going with this mindfulness and the power of thought is he's taking it to the quantum physics world. So if you kind of geek out on that stuff, he's your guy and he's looking at, you know, thought helping to kind of choose, if you will, the version of the future that you live and it does involve thought waves manipulating matter. So it's pretty trippy stuff for sure. Um, but really interesting. I think at the base of what he's saying is, Hey, through our thoughts, we can do some things, right? We can, we can help 
help ourselves. Uh, he just takes it really, really to the extreme. And, and I find it fascinating with, you know, how, how is this all working um, within kind of quantum realms and, and alternate options and things like that. But anyway, that's Joe Dispenza. And then the other guy just to look at is the urban monk. And that's what he calls himself. So I can call him that too, but he has a few books out. Um, he's got one out right now called Focus where he encompasses lots of things. He's a um, Chinese doctor of Chinese medicine. He's a, what he calls a, a Kung Fu world traveler. And his, his approach is multi-pronged, but it absolutely includes what we've been talking about today. Um, he also just reinforces, you know, other things, diet and um, exercise and, and, you know, being in and, the nature and those types of things is also being restorative. So another guy to look into, in my opinion. See if we can get him on the podcast. So that'd be yeah, a cool. list about four or five people. I'm going to call up. Um, you mentioned fibromyalgia and, you know, my notes here, we had a listener asking how neurofeedback uh, could possibly drain away the symptoms of chronic pain and specifically fibromyalgia. What is fibromyalgia? Anybody want to explain what that is? My understanding is through chronic inflammation, nerve endings are uh, excited to the point where they're firing consistently, constantly, um, and it creates this diffuse pain at different areas throughout your body. So Laura, help me, right? But that's, that's kind of my understanding of it. Yeah, and, and there's, there's trigger points or there's specific areas that this type of pain turns up and um, they, and I'm not up on the research on it, so I'm not a good person to answer it completely, but I don't think anyone is. I, I think that's, that's the problem is no one has, has a complete understanding of what it is. Patients are certainly suffering um, but it's it's more of a, a muscle than a joint condition. Is it? Would you say that, Skip? That's how I understand it. Yeah. Um, and then to loop it back around to the DSNR, um, it, it's the the idea is that there was an overreaction to stimulus that created this kind of well limbic system kind of being flipped on, or if it's on a toggle switch, you know what I mean? The base sensitivity has just been cranked up. And in this case, we're talking about chronic inflammation and that could be from lots of things. It could be reaction to traditional Western diet. It could be environmental toxins. It could be stress. It could be trauma, right? Trauma reaction, um, all the above, right? But the idea is, again, there was this initial incident and I don't mean one episode of anything. I just mean a place to start in conceptualizing how something might've gotten going where for whatever reasons, the autonomic nervous system was just overreacting to something and it learned to do that. And so it continued to do it because it was reinforced by all kinds of things, right? Increased symptoms, whatever you might have. Um, uh, default network, right? Just constantly focusing on these things on the, on the, the back burner, right? But it, anyway, it led to this system that's overworking. And so where DN, DNSR, DNRS sorry, would come in is through the steps we've mentioned, but check out Annie Hopper, she'll tell you better. Um, and it's about identifying um, these messages, if you will, 
trying to stop them, right? Putting a stop on them um, and then redirecting them to a more preferred uh, end point. And I know I'm making it sound simple, um, but there's work involved in it. It's not simple, right? It's just uh, shown to be effective. That's the point. And relatively quickly, like if it's been going on for 20 years for you, one, I'm sorry, but it doesn't take 20 years, right? Addressing it can bring immediate relief. It's just like neurofeedback. You need to practice it for it to kind of stick. So you might get immediate relief, but you got to hit it again tomorrow. And then you got to hit it again the day after that. Again, creating new habits. That's what we should call the show, right? Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Len, so, Len Kozio would always, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Len Kozio would always talk about pain um, from the OCD standpoint. I think of it as if something is causing you pain, and I guess, you know, regardless of the cause, you have to you know, figure out the cause with another, you know, conversation. But if, if your finger's in a vice, your number one priority beyond anything else is to get your hand out of the vice. Yeah. So you're going to obsess. I mean, that sounds like a rational, you know, a reasonable thing to do. You're going to obsess about how you're going to get your hand out of the vice. And regardless about lunch and regardless about your appointment at three o'clock, that, that's your number one thing. And so, yeah, you end up looping on, on the pain. And especially when there's nothing to do, we talk about default mode. Yeah, when, when there's nothing to do, you know, the pain feels worse at night. Well, why is that? It'd be obvious. You get nothing else kind of taking away, uh, not, nothing else gating it to something, you know, something, uh, something else. So um, the uh, OCD has, has a lot to do with it. And so back to mindfulness, I, I could absolutely see where getting more grounded in, in, in we'll say, reality, but not in this not in a non-psychotic way, but getting grounded in your sensory experiences can help you out of those loops. Instead of hoarding, as Len Kozio would say, instead of hoarding the pain, you get to kind of switch out of it. And I, I can see where those uh, techniques would be super useful. Yeah, because the brain so, is so, telling you, right? The brain's telling you, you got to pay attention to something. Yeah. To, That's OCD. Yeah. That's OCD, right? But there's no yeah, vice. Right, yeah. Yeah. Free me from the, yeah, free me from the pain. So if somebody suffers from the symptoms of fibromyalgia and they get a brain scan, I know it's not a be, be all end all, but what would the picture look like? Well, that's a great question. I don't know exactly to answer the specific question, but I know we see, you know, plenty of migraine patients and I, I know there's a sensory motor cortex that runs basically like uh, uh, from, from ear to ear uh, across across the, the strip there on, on your brain. So all of those things can be dysregulated for sure. And that includes the limbic system that uh, Skip mentioned, and you can have some cerebellar involvement. So I, I, I would imagine everywhere is probably the answer. But yeah, there's some specific things we can look for when, when we have chronic pain uh, patients. Because I mean, chronic pain, I mean, that's pain could be anywhere, you know, sure. this particular listener just brought up, you know, fibro, but it could be, you know, anything, right? Mm-hmm. But you have a so sensory tr- strip. Yeah, sure. You, there, there is a sensory strip that perceives sense, sensory information and it can absolutely be dysregulated because that's what we're talking about. Uh, even, you know, we're talking about the children who are overreactive to the cat in the shirt. 
So that, that's saying that that sensory area is, is dysregulated. It's, it's taking something that's mildly irritating and, and multiplying it times 20 as if, yeah, there's a, a knife in, you know, in that area when obviously there isn't. So there's a sensory area that can go, uh, and, and we've seen it with a lot of the pain patients that's right, right across the top of your head is if, I think they call it a corona view, uh, like a crown, like the, uh, a tiara from, from right. here, you can see that particular place lit up. And, yeah, and okay. fair question, Pete, like reasonable question. Uh, what I always think is kind of interesting, you know, obviously in retrospect with imaging and cues is, is sometimes it's an over-functioning of something. Uh, and sometimes it's an under-functioning because something else is over-functioning, you know? And so when you say, Hey, what would that look like? I get you. And I had the same question. Uh, it's just funny how you can kind of back your way into understanding something with an image that you wouldn't have expected, I guess is all I'm trying to say. Feel free to edit that out in post the other title of our podcast. We, no, no edits. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, guys, we got any, anything to add? Dr. Laura? The thing I'm uh, Googling at the moment and I'm laughing at myself. Uh, yeah. The Corona view. Is that the name of the view, Skip? Or am I thinking coronavirus is... <laughs> I thought it was... I thought you were in the ballpark. I didn't... Uh... I didn't even react with shock when he said it. Okay. There's sagittal, right? Yeah. yeah. And then I remember that's from Sagittarius with the arrow down the arrow, back. right? Yeah. So it does like that. You know, I'll throw it out there. A free cup of coffee to any of the listeners <laughs> that want to call BS on what we've just talked about in the last 60 seconds. I think you say the last uh, 12 episodes. <laughs> No, we'll just, we don't have that much money. I, I found it. It's Corona. I was right. Um, but the funny, so, but it, I, I questioned myself because of the coronavirus. I'm like, how could there be a coronal view and a coronavirus? I guess there is. So that's the way that everyone in the world can remember where you're going to see pain dysregulation on a uh, map. So bring your Corona in and we'll uh, take a picture of it. So what you're saying is Corona is a big pain. There you go. Okay. Um, well. <laughs> Music? In, insert drum snare symbol here. Okay, guys, we got anything else uh, we want to hit? That's funny. I don't think okay, so. Okay, guys, great great cast as usual. Uh, Dr. Laura can be found at jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com. That's drskiprin.com. Hey, you got an idea for a topic? Any comments? Hey, feel free. Email me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Guys, have a great weekend. Another great podcast. Cue the music. <laughs>